if you're taking notes uh, for your own personal study or edification, uh, here is your main idea or your big truth for today. Uh, the church is a group of misfit missionaries. The church is a group of misfit uh, missionaries, and as we walk through chapter 16, I want to highlight what Luke highlights, uh, and that's four conversions. There, there are four people who were brought into an understanding of the, of the saving grace of God through the ministry of Paul and his compadres on their missionary journey. And I want to look at those four people and really understand that God puts this thing together, a, a church, as a group of misfits, <laughs> And then he calls them to embrace this wonderful and beautiful and glorious mission to go gather more misfits and call them family. If you're new around here, we've been in the building for a short time. You can see around that the, the church is still under construction. And I point that out to you, not as a negative, but only to say that honestly, the church is always under construction, isn't it? Because misfits are always under construction. We're always under the guiding providential grace of God as we're embracing more and more the call to be more like Jesus and less like our old selves. And so when the stage is finished, the church isn't done. We're still under construction this morning. So let's look at this first misfit, uh, Acts 16, verses 1 through 5. I just read them to you. Um, it, it, it's Paul's interaction and meeting with a man named Timothy. Acts 16, verse 1. Paul came to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra, Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. That's a reference back to uh, Acts chapter 15, which you can go and read about. And then in verse 5 says, So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Uh, the, our first misfit is named Timothy, and what Luke tells us is that he is born into a believing family, um, but it's a mixed uh, racial and interfaith marriage. Timothy's mom is a believer. In fact, we, we'll, we can read other places in the New Testament that actually Timothy's grandmother was also a believer. And so Timothy's born into this family of uh, women who are leading the family in their faith. How many of you have come from a family like that? And where mom was kind of the spiritual spearhead of your family. Timothy benefits from that. His father is a Greek. His mom is a Jew. So we've got an interracial, interfaith marriage. Paul meets this young man, and in hearing his testimony, in hearing uh, his good reputation among the other disciples, says, you know what, this is a guy I want on my team. Paul and Timothy's relationship will be one to great kingdom impact throughout the New Testament. Paul himself will write two letters back to Timothy uh, of encouragement after he leaves Timothy and other churches to lead. He will be uh, Paul's right-hand man. Probably uh, no one closer to Paul other than maybe Luke uh, will be Timothy to Paul. Ten years ago, at my home church in Asperia, we had a pastoral candidate come and preach. And after he was done preaching, I walked up to him and I said, I am a Timothy looking for a Paul. At the time, I had no idea what that would mean or what God would do with it, but I'm absolutely glad that he did not say, open your Bible to Acts 16, meet me in the conference room with a sharp knife. <laughs> but that's what Paul does to Timothy. Which is theologically interesting because if you read Acts 15, in Acts 15, <laughs> that's absolutely true, and uh, that pastoral candidate's name was Jeff Ludington, by the way, if you don't know the story. Uh, 
In Acts 15, the council of elders and leaders in the church get together and they say, circumcision is not necessary for salvation. That is, that there's no outward physical need to be conformed to a, a national um, racial uh, standard to be saved. And yet, in the immediate following chapter, we're told that Paul takes Timothy and circumcises him because of the Greek. So here's what I'd say. Paul, uh, Timothy's not being circumcised uh, for, for the sake of religious conformity, uh, Timothy's being circumcised for the sake of missional fluidity. What I mean is so that Timothy might be able to minister to the most amount of people that he can, Paul circumcises him. Which begs for us the question is, what might we be willing to sacrifice for the sake of mission? What might we be willing to give up? Timothy endured actual physical pain for the sake of the mission. As I said, Timothy's the son of a mixed interfaith, interracial marriage. His mother and grandmother brought him up in the faith. His father did not. Timothy is a third generation Christian. What's the name of our church again? Interesting. What hope and dream and legacy and wish might we have, like Timothy's, to see multiple generations worship God in the city of Cerritos through the ministry here? To see not only our sons, but also our grandsons worship and love Jesus because of the faithful testimony we have in this place. Timothy had that. We might say that God answered Timothy's mom's prayers and he became a believer and accompanied Paul on this missionary journeys. Again, as I said, they will have a, a deep friendship. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul will refer to Timothy this way. He says, that is why I sent you Timothy, writing to the Corinthians, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Corinthians, uh, the, Corinthian, the Corinthian church was jacked up and needed a special kind of leader, and Paul could think of no one better, if not himself, than Timothy and send him there and continue to call him. So Timothy's our first misfit, the son of an interracial, interfaith marriage whom God seeks to save and become a missionary. Verse 6, the journey continues, and they went through the region of... Uh, Phygeria and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they'd come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought up to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail for Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. What we see here in verses 6 through 12 is God's providential guidance of the church, but it happens in an interesting way. We might say that God uses negative guidance here. What I mean by that is, is Paul has a desire to go to a few different places, but the Spirit of God shuts him down. In spiritual terms or, or common vernacular in the church, we might say that God closed the door. But what we see is God is actively, providentially moving and guiding his church through a process to minister to the people that he wants them to minister by closing doors and then actively speaking to Paul through a vision with a man in Macedonia saying, come 
help us. And so Paul, Luke, Timothy, the rest of the gang, they determine that that is from God, and so they make their way through Macedonia and end up in the city of Philippi. What we will read here in the preceding verses is the planting of the Philippian church. Now, what I want us to consider is both we experience this negative guidance of God, both uh, personally and individually in our life. That is, sometimes God will not grant us opportunities that we really want to happen, but we also experience it corporately as a church. If you've been around generations for the last two, three years, you know that the process to arrive where we are at today in our own building has not been entirely smooth. Amen. Amen. But it was God's plan. And yet we can as confidently as Marcia just proclaimed say that we stand here in this place through the direction of God. Knowing that while maybe there were other avenues we wanted to go, God has brought us here to the city of Cerritos on purpose to gather his people that he has appointed to believe here in this city. That's all Paul and the rest of his crew were doing in Philippi. See, what God did, God does, and God will do. Verse uh, 13. So let me back up. So don't discount God's negative guidance in your life and fall into the trap of discouragement, which I'll talk more about later. But, but be encouraged that God is directing you actively, even if it's with the answer no. Uh, verse 13, we'll call this misfit number two. Verse 13, and on the Sabbath day, so they're in the city of Philippi, and on the Sabbath day we went outside to the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Now here's an interesting note about the church in Philippi. Paul's normal pattern of missionary strategy is when he arrives in a new city, he goes to the synagogue. That would be the place of Jewish worship on the Sabbath. Now the thing about a synagogue is you couldn't have a synagogue unless you had at least 10 Jewish men within the city. And so what we see here about Philippi, and what we can discern from the text, is that there, there is less than 10 Jewish men in the city. So on the Sabbath day, when Paul's ready to go preach the gospel, there's no synagogue to be had, so he goes down to the riverside to pray. All you old school hymn folks know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> down to the river. You know, I won't sing for you. It's my wife's job. So that's where Paul goes. He goes down to the riverside where there's a place of prayer, and he sees some women who would come together for worship, prayer, and fellowship. And oh, by the way, cheap plug opportunity. If you're a lady and you're looking for some Bible study, fellowship, and ministry, there are two women's fall studies getting ready to kick off in the next two weeks. So go get them. Verse 14. Uh, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Down by the river, Paul meets this group of women, and God, supernaturally by his Spirit, opens up Lydia's heart to receive the testimony of the death, resurrection of Jesus Christ as the good news. God rescues her. We know a couple things about her. One, she is a prominent merchant. She's a seller of purple goods. Uh, purple would have been a very expensive fabric because of the dye and the color at this time and point in history. It would have only been sold to those who could afford it. And so she is a financially stable and prominent merchant. She's got some resources God saves her. Her heart is opened by God through regeneration, and then she and her household after her are baptized, and we have the planting of the church in Philippi through a prominent businesswoman in the city. 
Having the gift of hospitality and generosity, she opens her home to Paul and the group traveling with him, and the first home church plant Bible study opens in the city of Philippi. God uses a woman to start the church in Philippi through the testimony and preaching and leadership of Paul. Verse 16. You can woohoo that. Listen, yeah, man. When we talk about gender equality, the gospel establishes gender equality back to its root in God's created order. Okay? No laws of man do that. No policies of culture do that. God did that. And so what God's doing here is reestablishing the right order. So misfit number three, or excuse me, misfit number two is Lydia, a prominent merchant saved by God in which he starts the church in Philippi. Uh, Verse 16, we'll call this misfit number three. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune teller. So weeks time is passing. It's uh, the Sabbath once again. The church is being planted and started. The household's been baptized. People are getting to know Jesus. And, and Paul and his crew are going back down to the river to pray and, and have kind of that outdoor worship service. Uh, and then along the way, there's this slave girl it, it, um, infested with a demon who's got divination prayers, which means uh, they're using as kind of a fortune teller to make her owner's money. They meet her along their way. Verse 17, she followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, there's an interesting parallel here to what happens to Paul and the missionary crew. There's a a demon-infested girl following them, proclaiming that they are servants of the Most High. Whenever Jesus and his disciples would run into a demon-possessed person, they would proclaim the same thing. They'd say, that is the Son of the Most High. Almost all the demons refer to Jesus that way as the son of the most high, using that title for God, the most high, which is an interesting thought when you consider what caused the demons and Satan to fall was pride because they wanted to grab the position of the most high and make it their own. And so this demon-possessed slave girl recognizes Paul and his missionary crew as servants of the most high who proclaim the way of salvation. Even demons recognize the power of the testimony of Jesus. Verse 18 And she kept doing it for many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, (laughs) turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. You remember the old uh, Looney Tunes cartoons? There was always the big dog who'd be walking down the street and then the little dog would yip at him. Where are we going today, Butch? What's going on, Butch? How are we doing, Butch? What's going on, Butch? I imagine that scene right here. Like Paul and the crew are headed down to the river and there's this little slave girl going, these are the servants of the Most High. These are the servants of the Most High. They'll tell you the way of salvation. And Paul's finally like, listen, I don't need a herald. Get a day job. Come out of her. And it came out that very hour. And what had become a distraction now becomes a disciple. Through the testimony and the power of the name of Jesus Christ, this slave girl is saved both from being pimped out by her owners and from being demon-possessed. And she's granted freedom in Christ. And she becomes the second member of the Church of Philippi. So here's who we have getting saved. Prominent businesswoman and demon-possessed slave girl. That's the foundation of the church in Philippi. Misfit missionaries, amen? Verse 19, here's what happens. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, 
they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. These men who were abusing, misusing this little girl for their own wicked financial gain, see her get freed from the demon that had possessed and tortured her and become enraged. They don't celebrate the freedom. They don't celebrate the beauty of what God does. They're only upset that they can no longer manipulate this woman's pain for their own gain. And so they seize Paul. They seize Silas. It looks like Luke and Timothy and others avoid this for whatever reason. But Paul and Silas are dragged into the marketplace and kind of the center of town before the rulers of the city. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Notice what the charge is. The charge isn't, hey, these guys are taking money out of our pocket. Hey, these guys are countercultural. Hey, these guys don't fit into what we accept and tolerate as acceptable human and cultural behavior. Church, this should be the accusation we receive all the time. Hey, these guys don't fit our cultural mold. Hey, that church is teaching things that are contrary to the culture. Hey, that that church is embodying things that we don't like. That's what these men are charged with. Verse 22, the crowd joined in attacking them. It's like a Facebook frenzy. (laughs) And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. That's a tremendous detail Luke gives us, and it's it's because of what's about to happen next. But Paul and Silas are physically beaten, we're told, not just with fists, but with, with rods, and we're told that they have received many blows. And after having received many blows, only then are they jailed and imprisoned deep down into the inner prison, and they're put their feet in stocks. Essentially, they're locked up in chains. What a nice return for their kingdom work. Know this, church. Opposition always follows opportunity. Every time. We see the theme throughout Jesus' ministry, throughout the early church, throughout history. Opposition will always follow opportunity. We shouldn't discount opposition. We shouldn't be discouraged by it. We should welcome it because we know God's got an opportunity. God's doing something. Verse 25, we'll call this misfit number four. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. I'm not sure what your reaction to a midday beating and imprisonment would be, but mine's probably not to hold a worship service. It's probably to consider my career options. But that's what Paul and Silas do. They see the opposition as opportunity, and so they begin praying and singing hymns to God. Knowing that they have no favor among men, they go to the one who they do have eternal favor with, and they pray and worship him. The other prayers begin to listen in. Verse 26. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundation of the prisons were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Obviously God is at work here. Supernaturally sends an earthquake. It shakes the very foundations of the prison so much so that the doors fly open and even the chains and the stocks that were around their ankles are supernaturally opened up. Verse 27. When the jailer woke... And saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. What you need here is some context for Roman law. 
It was illegal for a Roman soldier or jailer to abandon his post, even during times of conflict, when he was guarding prisoners. And the penalty for violating that law was death. So what the uh, jailer here is doing is he's presuming that after the earthquake and seeing the doors open, that all of the prisoners have left... And having lost those under his care and guard, he's facing a death sentence. And so on his own honor, he's going to afflict that upon himself rather than be drugged in front of the magistrates and have it put upon him. Supposing that the prisoners had escaped, verse 27, verse 28. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Talks about some spiritual self-control. The chains are broken. The doors are open. I am gone, making it like the roadrunner. Cloud of dust. But not Paul, not Silas, not their crew. They, write, they remain right where they believe God had put them. He calls out as an encouragement to the jailer. Don't harm yourself. We're all here. We haven't gone anywhere. Paul, too, is a Roman citizen, which we'll read about in a second. So he knows Roman law. Verse 29. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Opposition precedes opportunity, amen? amen? Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Underline that question or write it down in your notes. There is no more important question that you will ever ask in your lifetime. Period. Not where you will live, not where you will work, not where you will retire, not who you will marry, not how you will raise your kids, not what church you will attend. But what must I do to be saved? And through great spiritual providence, this jailer is brought to that moment in an instant. In the afternoon, he arrested these men and saw them as enemies. By evening time, he saw them as the source of salvation. Verse 31, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Underline that sentence too. Because here's the means. Notice Paul didn't start a theological question. Didn't give him 10 steps to salvation. Didn't give him self-improvement lessons. Well, first, son, you're going to have to get cleaned up. And you're going to have to change the way you speak. And you're going to have to change the people that you hang out with. And frankly, you're going to have to change the way you dress. And those nightclubs that you like to visit so often, well, you're not going to be able to go to those either. No, he simply gives him and delivers the gospel of Jesus Christ to him and trusts God with the rest. Let us not, especially if we're going to be a group of misfit missionaries, we cannot get bogged down with the outward appearance of people's lives. It's like putting lipstick on a pig, right? Like, let me fix all the things that I think are wrong on the outside while neglecting what's wrong, your true nature. Only God can fix the first, and then we'll trust him with the rest. Let us not get bogged down with trying to reorder and rearrange people's lives like some spiritual DIY project. Let's deliver them the gospel of Jesus Christ and trust that God knows what he's doing. Verse 32, and they spoke the word to the Lord, of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Now listen, there's a lot of household salvation going on here in Acts 16. And while we cannot make this formulaic, that is mean if God saves one person in household, he, he is obligated to save everybody, but there is enough evidence to say that this is the ordinary way God works. Yes. 
So if you came here alone and you've got people sleeping in at home, let's keep praying. Let's keep believing in the promise that God can do what he did with the Philippian jailer and with Lydia's household to your household. Let's believe that that empty seat sitting next to you right now is going to be full very soon. Let's believe that God wants to save our households and we can believe that because he saved you. Verse 34, then he brought them up into his house and set food before them and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in them. Talk about like racial and enemy reconciliation in this section. Like at the beginning of this passage, we've got Paul and Silas and his group of merry Jewish missionaries in prison. And by the end of it, they're sitting at the table with their Roman jailer having a meal after he's dressed their wounds and washed them and made them clean. What a beautiful group of misfit missionaries. Verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. The jailer believes this, he's delivering good news. Okay, the magistrates have come to their senses. You got beat. You got a night in jail. Uh, the, the story of the miraculous earthquake has spread. You're, you stayed in jail. We're, we're ready to let you go. But Paul does something interesting. Verse 37. Where you and I might say, okay, I will take that jail to get out of free card. Listen to what Paul does. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. Do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. <laughs> Woo! Forgive me, but Paul's got some spiritual cojones. I, just forgive me, but like, he says, hey, I know you're going to let us out of jail, but I don't want to get, get out of jail that way. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to send the magistrates, the leaders of the town, I want them to march their happy political butts down here and escort us out of the city in front of everyone because they know what they did is wrong. Paul like, just continues to call out injustice and unrighteousness wherever he finds it. Confidence in God. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. Why? Because it was illegal to beat and jail a Roman citizen who had not been publicly condemned. Paul didn't stand trial. They took rumor and accusation as law and beat them and imprisoned them unjustly and unfairly. Verse 39, so they came and apologized to them. Crazy. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visit, visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. A couple things contextually we might miss here. Number one, notice that the language changes from we to they in verse 40. Looks like Luke is going to stay here in Philippi and help lead and love and serve the church. The language that was we in verse 10 now becomes they. So we see Luke is going to stay behind to help lead, love, serve. Because remember, at this point, what we know of in the Philippian church, we've got Lydia, a prominent businesswoman. We've got a recovering slave, demon-possessed slave girl. And now we've got a Philippian Roman jailer. That's your core team. Ready? Go. <laughs> Anybody else signing up? Yeah, I'll take them. So here's what I think Paul's doing. I think Paul's going to use some of that political like favor that he's earned to protect the church. That's why I think he makes this demand of the magistrates so they might recognize that, hey, they did a Roman citizen wrong and Paul's got kind of a one-up over them. 
And Paul's going to use that to make sure that this little fragile church that is being birthed in the city of Philippi is protected and doesn't endure the same persecution. That's just pure conjecture, but it's what I think is going on here, why Paul does that. I don't think it's any sort of pride or self-grandizement. I, I think he wants the magistrates to be in his debt so that the group of people he favors will be favored by them. This is what life is all about, church. It is about God's calling out a people to himself, a people who will know him. His purpose for us then is to assist in that great call and work as a group of misfit missionaries. And as I close, I want to highlight a couple things. One, I want to talk about Paul's mission-ready mindset. Because it's one thing to appreciate the fact that we're misfits. We're all from different backgrounds and, and callings and struggles, but we're all together as a family. But it's another thing to understand this that we're misfit missionaries. And so I want to look at Paul's mindset. Because consider this, what if maybe... What if Paul, when meeting Timothy, considered him the half-breed son of a mixed interracial interfaith marriage and allowed racism to creep into his thinking and disregard Timothy? God can't use that guy. What if, having the regional doors slammed in his face, Paul got discouraged and quit on his journey and just assumed that Asia Minor was a hard place bearing no gospel fruit? What if, finding no synagogue and Jewish men to disciple, Paul disregarded and devalued the women's prayer group and never met Lydia? What if Paul figured the slave girl was too damaged and broken to be saved by God? I don't want to get in that mess. Ugh. What if Paul became embittered and angry toward his enemies after suffering a physical and unjust beating? And imprisonment. What's getting in the way of our missionary mindset? Is there a particular group of people that you find it difficult to be a missionary to? Is there a particular circumstance that you really hoped worked out, but because God said no, you're just kind of whatever? Have you suffered at the hands of others and just grown bitter? And frustrated. That's the joy of the gospel of Christ is difficult to talk about. What's keeping you from delving into that missionary mindset that God calls us to? See, because Paul was able to overcome all of these. He didn't fall into any one of these traps. And we see God save these beautiful misfits in Acts 16 and turn them into a missionary group together. Which means today, the second thing I want to close with is if you find yourself as a misfit, as an outsider this morning, there's good news for you here today. For there is one in Jesus Christ who takes outsiders and makes them insiders. There's one who welcomes the misfit and makes them a member of his family. And so in order to move from misfit to, to member of the misfit missionary family, there, there's two things you must believe and one thing you must do this morning. Number one, you must believe God's word when it says that you cannot help yourself spiritually. That you are a sinner and among the imperfect misfits that Jesus came to save. Second, you must believe that Jesus is able to do what you cannot do. That you cannot save yourself, but he can save you. That he is the great physician who's come for the sick and for the suffering, for the misfit and for the outsider. That you, like the church, are not perfect, but Jesus is. And then he came to die to remove your sin. 
And that he rose from the dead so that you might know that God is satisfied with what he has done on your behalf forever. And then finally, you must commit yourself to him. The Bible speaks of this in a variety of ways, but in each case it is clear that it involves an act of our will. It says that we are to believe in Jesus, to place ourselves in his hands, and to submit ourselves to his will for our life. So are you ready? Are you ready to join the band of misfit missionaries in this place? Because we'd love to have you. And Jesus welcomes you here. Let me pray for you, church. Father God, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you, God, that the misfit missionary church has lasted through the ages, God, and for the wonderful and beautiful privilege to be a part of it here in this place at this time. God, would you help us? Would you help us where we still feel like a misfit, where we still feel broken and lost and on the outside? God, whether we come from a sketchy background, whether we've experienced tremendous pain and brokenness, God, whether we are part of a group that just seems marginalized, or God, whether we at sometimes have acted like an enemy of your people, would you minister to our heart right now and call us home to yourself? God, we thank you for the privilege and honor of being gathered as a people. We pray now as we continue to worship you in generosity, God, in recognition of your death and life and resurrection. God, with the lifting up of our voices, that you would be glorified. We seek to keep none of the favor for ourselves. We want to lift your name up in this place. We ask this according to your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.